the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Message and data. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee. With me in studio is my wife, Alexandra Greenlee. And we're grateful you're with us today. We have some material that I think will draw your heart closer to Jesus and raise the question, are you seeking him with all of your heart? We're going to share a story that we've shared before. But we want you to listen with prayerful thoughtfulness. As I read it again, my heart was stirred and touched. We trust yours will be as well. Now, Pilgrim's Progress is produced by the National Prayer Chapel. And right now at Pilgrim's Progress, we're in a drought. And I'm very grateful for those of you who have responded and we've begun to get a response. Thank you. Uh, We're still a long way from where we should be at this time of the month for paying the radio bill at the end of July. WAVA is paid each month precisely the amount we owe and we give that amount to you when we do the offertory I wish we had no offertories. I wish and pray that God will just move in the hearts of his people, you, and that you would give generously and that the cost of this radio broadcast could be covered. 
So please, as the Holy Spirit moves in your heart, July is the and August are the two tough months for radio ministries. So God bless you as you give. Now let's pray. Lord, we come eager and earnest, seeking your face, seeking with all of our hearts. Lord, would you use these simple words today? and begin to bring revival in Washington. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We honor your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Yes, our address where you can send your tithes or offerings is the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also give on our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. And we welcome you to send not only gifts and offerings, but we'd love to hear feedback from you about this broadcast. We would love to hear testimonies. You can email us. You can write us a letter, send us a card. You all are really a congregation to us. And so we'd love to hear how you're doing with Jesus. Now, what we're sharing today, first of all, there is a very pronounced difference between John the Baptist and between Jesus Christ. John the Baptist came preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins. He baptized in water and he did no miracles. And his role was to prepare the way for the Lord meaning to prepare a people who had already repented of their sins, who had left their sin, who had been forgiven by God for their past sins, and who were now ready to receive Jesus. Now, when Jesus came, he was first baptized in the Holy Spirit before he began his ministry. And what we see from the very beginning of Jesus's ministry is he's preaching what he calls the gospel of the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom of God. He does thousands of miracles. He preaches that God's kingdom has arrived and now is the time to enter it. And he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, we have gotten confused because we have thought that repentance and the forgiveness of sins is the gospel, but this is really the preparation for the gospel, meaning it is the preparation to enter God's kingdom. This is why Jesus, when he was being questioned by the Pharisees about where his authority came from, he said, well, let me ask you a question first. He said, the baptism of John, where did it come from? Was it, of, was it of men or was it from God? The reason he asked that question is because if we do not receive the baptism of John, we cannot go on to receive the baptism of Jesus. In other words, if we do not repent of our sins, we cannot then go on to enter the kingdom and receive the baptism that Jesus would give us. Of the Holy Spirit and fire. Now when we speak about revival, we're just using a different term to describe God's kingdom coming on the earth as it is in heaven. 
This is what Jesus told us to pray. He said, when we pray, to pray our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray for revival, we're praying the same thing. We're praying that God's kingdom would come on the earth. And that's why we pray things like that multitudes would be converted and would come to Jesus. We pray things like our city would become a Christian city, that it would become normal in our neighborhood for families to live in peace with each other and to gather morning and evening to praise and worship the Lord. These are very concrete things that happen as God's kingdom comes on the earth. But this kingdom only comes through men and women and children who receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. Now we're going to share with you the story of the beginning of the Argentine revival. And this story really begins with one man, with an evangelist, who recognized that he did not have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. And so he sets himself to seek the Lord with all his heart until he receives it. And then what follows is the revival in Argentina that we sometimes describe as saying the whole nation of Argentina turned to God. Argentina, we say, became a Christian nation. So we'll begin reading. This book is called Thy God Reigneth, The Story of Revival in Argentina. The opening scripture is Jeremiah 29:13. You shall seek me and find me when you shall see search for me with all your heart. In January of 1949, I came to the end of the road to La Vale a village nestling in the foothills of the great Andes Mountains. I went with missionary Robert Thomas and a gospel tent. Our purpose was to hold a gospel campaign in a town where to our knowledge the gospel had never been preached before. We labored in the hot Andean sun, filling the air with recorded music, visiting every home in the community, distributing tracts and gospel portions, we prayed and prepared messages, yet night after night, no one came. Then came torrential rains and flooded us out. Still, we kept on. But in spite of all of our efforts, witnessing, testifying, preaching, we still had no congregation. The strong man still ruled over the small city. After two weeks of expense and labors, we were forced to retreat in keen disappointment with absolutely no visible returns. For me, that defeat marked the end of a long trail and the beginning of a new one. I fled him down the labyrinth ways of my own mind. Could well describe my relationship with God up to that time. There had always been plausible excuses for the lack of harvest and the want of results in my ministry. As a child, I'd often witnessed mighty operations of God under the ministry of servants of God, like Dr. Charles Price and Amy McPherson. Yet I knew these operations were lacking in my own ministry. Still, excuses, convenient places to lay the blame, 
provided for me imaginary refuge from the searching light of God's truth. Always the reason for my failure lay somewhere outside of myself. In one place the people were too hard, in another it was not harvest time yet, or it was necessary to sow the seed first, or the people had no faith. From one pastorate to another, from one mission field to another, the excuses multiplied. True, a certain work for God had been done. In the eyes of man there was no need to feel ashamed. But in my own secret heart, I knew there was a better way. The ever-faithful Spirit of God did not let complacency hinder His purposes. Times without number, the question of Elisha echoed in my soul. Where is the God of Elijah? Now in Levale, a town which had never heard the gospel before was neither gospel-hardened nor burned-over territory. I was faced with a stark reality. I had been defeated. With every condition favorable, missionary equipment complete, a competent missionary evangelist companion, I had still failed utterly. I was forced to admit that in spite of excellent ministerial training and the baptism of the Holy Spirit received as a child, there was still an obvious and deadly lack of power in my ministry. The long road of excuses was over. My fleeing ended. God caused me to take inventory of myself. The result was disillusioning. Bitterly defeated, all defenses overthrown, I was brought by God into a conference of surrender, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, God says, challenging for the surrender of both flesh and the works of the flesh. Good as flesh works were, they were unacceptable. God was offering a new way, a way of power and operation of the Holy Spirit himself released in the ministry of deliverance. There is a path which no fowl knoweth, and which the vulture's eye hath not seen. The lion's whelps have not trodden it, nor the fierce lion passed by it. Job 28, 7-8 The terms of God for surrender were that I should spend a minimum of eight consecutive hours daily with him in prayer and his word. If a man could work eight hours a day, a minister could pray as long. Sometimes I remained much longer than the eight hours, at times all day and night. Some openly expressed their disapproval, questioning my sanity, concluding that no one had a right to receive a missionary's salary who spent most of his time in prayer and not in traditional missionary activities. Yet I knew that I could not go one step more fooling myself and fleeing from God. I had to accept his challenge. In a little vacant attic room over the garage of the Adobe Church in Mendoza, where I was interim pastor at the time, I began to seek the Lord. 
I just had to find God's answers for revival and the moving of his spirit in Argentina, for a divine intervention such as spoken of in the book of Acts, for an operation according to his abilities and not according to mine. Was it merely wishful thinking? Was it possible for an ordinary man without any other qualifications than a call to ministry to meet God in such a way that it would bring tangible results and visible fruit? Did God challenge men? Could man accept such a challenge? Could time accept the challenge of eternity? Were all the mighty saints and prophets of history special, sovereign creations of God, or were they just ordinary men and women who accepted the challenge of God? Was there a way? Could man have a direct encounter with God? If not, at the end of that road of no return, if there were no answers, there loomed ahead for me an abysmal disorientation, shattered dreams, and illusions long held in sacred secret. So often in the scriptures, God says to man, seek my face, but he never tells how it is to be done. Was seeking God the prerogative of a select few, a limited group of mystics by birth who could climb high on the prophet's mountain? Many unanswered, que unanswered questions led me to one main question. Could a most ordinary man, with but the most ordinary talent and preparation, without any special gifts of mysticism or genius, find God? Was there for such a person a vital contact, a personal encounter with the Lord of Glory? A careful search of the scriptures, from Abraham to Nehemiah, from Elijah to Peter, seemed to clearly indicate an affirmative. Being practical by nature, more at home in shop and field than at desk or in a prophet's chamber, I had to find an answer that was at the same time both spiritual and practical, dynamically real as well as scripturally authentic. The spiritual and the material just had to meet in man. Doubts questions and fears marked the passing of long hours. Where was God? The walls echoed back the barren question. Turmoils wrestled within. Was such a demand on God human impertinence? Ahead loomed an apparently dead-end street, a defeat threatened so final and so abysmal that the fear of it became a strong motive to forge on. Days of fasting, and still there was no answer. Endless hours passed, and still no windows were opened in heaven. Weeping, waiting, meditating, searching the word, walking, kneeling, standing, and again prostrate on the floor. Silence. No posture, no fasting, no tears, no cries could pierce the silent, invisible barrier which so oppressively closed in upon my being. The days slowly passed, lengthening into weeks. 
God was in no hurry to uncover the secrets of his mysteries. He who had so carefully hid the diamonds deeply in the earth for only the most diligent of seekers to find did not hurry to reveal his hiding place to the one who aspired to visit his treasury. The seeking and digging was necessary. Two months passed, and eternity fitted into time. Not a breeze stirred in the spiritual world, not even a tiny cloud the size of a man's hand appeared. Then the enemy brought an almost successful attempt to halt the search, set God a date. Surely, by now, you know you are mistaken. There's no use going on indefinitely. So I set a date. God, if by the end of this week, Saturday evening at five o'clock, you don't manifest yourself, then I will know that I am mistaken. I will go out with tracks, returning to the conventional missionary routine. Surely God, knowing I was sincere, would be forced to move out from his hiding place. But still no breeze stirred. In infinite wisdom and patience, God held his peace. And the end of the week drew near. The five o'clock hour arrived, and still God had done nothing. With unutterable bitterness of soul, with tears of frustration and defeat, welling up from the depths within, I filled my pockets with tracks and slowly walked down the long hall which led to the street. God had not answered. At that moment, in God's precise timing, a local pastor arrived with his teenage unconverted son. During the visit, the pastor poured out his troubles at great length. Minutes became hours. It was impossible to do the proposed house-to-house visitation and the tract distribution. As the two visitors prepared to leave, I asked the boy a searching question. One word led to another until the young boy was on his face, sobbing his way to Calvary's fountain. The two finally left. In the darkness of the hall, with the door behind them scarcely closed, a voice within me said, You see, son, when I wish I can bring them in, Now return to prayer until I tell you it's time to leave. So back I went again into the little attic room for more weeks of wrestling, prayer, and the word. Months went by until time lost all its meaning. Then one day, a day no different from all the others that had gone before, without any advance warning whatsoever, A word was spoken into the very air of that room, a word that vibrated into the depths and out again into the heights. Upon that word, the mighty presence of God came and filled the whole world, it seemed. In a voice that seemed fully audible, a special message was given. The separating veil was rent. The windows opened. Glory shone all around, and I was in spirit. God had come to just an ordinary man. He had chosen to speak, to bring forth his purposes, his will. His reality was manifested and his word fully vindicated. 
he had not said, Seek ye my face in vain. For weeks the heavens were opened, and in spirit I saw things unlawful to be uttered. Then a strange order was given. Go call the people to prayer. I will pour out my spirit upon them. Tell them, Come, prepared to stay from eight until midnight. If they're not prepared to stay the entire four hours, they must not come at all. Could such an order be of the Lord? Just a little while previously, a most convenient hour had been chosen for prayer meeting, and no one had come. And now at a most inconvenient hour, who would be interested enough to come? The order was unspectacular and oversimple. Naaman had expected the prophet to at least strike his hands over the place of his affliction, anticipating a dramatic appearance of some kind, not a mere order to go wash seven times in the Jordan. I later discovered that it's not the order, but the one who gives it that makes all the difference. God's ways are not our ways. He gave this command, and he expected it to be obeyed literally. I must confess I had my doubts. I knew my few church people, their lethargy, their lack of interest in the things of God. If there was any response at all, I knew it would have to be God. God was beginning to teach us the importance of simple, explicit obedience. In Eden, it was not the quantity of fruit consumed that brought such chaos. It was the quality of disobedience, which revealed a deep rebellion to the rule of God and separated man from his God. Implicit, simple obedience is the only way that leads back into the presence of God and restores the right relationship with him. The invitation made to the little church group the following Sunday was most unusual and difficult to fulfill. Cold winter weather, unheated buildings, and lack of transportation after midnight all combined to make it difficult to respond to such a call. Nevertheless, three people indicated their willingness to attend the proposed prayer services. These three came a timid servant lass, a backslidden man, and his young wife. Not one of the three had ever seen anyone filled with the Holy Spirit. This small church, and many like it in Argentina at that time, had never experienced any manifestations of the Holy Spirit. They did not know how to receive the Holy Spirit, nor what would it would be like when he came. We spent some time the first night instructing them according to the scriptures. Then we all knelt before the Lord in prayer. They waited on in utter silence. I led out in prayer, praise, and song, but no one joined me. They merely waited on in silence. When the four hours had passed, I asked if anyone had received any impulse from the Lord that would call for any cooperation on their part. Had anyone any impulse to pray aloud, to praise the Lord, to sing a song, in fact, to do anything at all? 
Everyone answered in the negative except for the young wife. She admitted a strange desire to arise, walk to the table in the center of the room, and hit it. Surely that was a bit strange. Being far too proud to even consider such a thing, she merely commented, it would be too foolish. Nor could she be persuaded to even try it. Thus, the first prayer meeting ended. Again, I went before the Lord. I had fulfilled his command, and nothing had happened. What should we do now? But the Lord only said to wait and gather again for prayer. The next night, the same group returned to seek the Lord. The second night was an exact repetition of the night before. During the four silent hours, no one had felt the slightest impulse from the Lord except for the same woman who confessed to the same strange desire as the first night. But as had happened the night before, she could not be persuaded to do it. The meeting ended in such dismal failure that I was certain no one would return the following night. Could this be of the Lord, a thing so strange and so out of the ordinary, a desire to rap on a table? Nothing like it had ever been mentioned in the Bible. Why had God not moved? Why did he delay if he had given the command to gather for prayer, promising that he would manifest himself? Many questions and doubts zeroed in upon my heart and mind. In fear and trembling, I awaited the next service. The third night, the same three joined my wife and me for another evening of prayer. A backslidden, called-to-be preacher, his wife, and a servant lass. This result was another evening of silent waiting, another evening of no response to any urgings or promptings of the Holy Spirit. When the service was nearly over, I asked the man's wife if she still felt like banging the table. With su much shame and blushing timidity, she admitted that she did, but in no way could she be persuaded to do it? How difficult it is for a man to learn to know the voice of God. Three times God called Samuel, and three times Samuel thought it was the voice of Eli. Only the fourth time did he learn that it was God speaking. Several times God had spoken to this young lady. Somehow I knew it was God speaking. Had he not ordered these prayer services? And would he not fulfill his promise to manifest himself? But the woman would not obey. Thursday night, everything continued as on the previous evenings until 11 o'clock when I asked everyone to get up from their knees and be seated. Young lady, I asked, do you still feel like hitting the table? In shame and reluctance, she confessed to the same strange desire, but she wouldn't get up and do it. So I asked everyone to rise. Singing a chorus, we all marched around the table. As each one gathered courage to hit the table, finally the young lady also took courage and reached out. When she hit the table, immediately a rushing wind swept into the room from the southeast corner. In seconds, the retiring, timid, Servant Lass was on her feet, worshipping the Lord in great ecstasy. 
Her hands were raised in the air. Her face was transformed, radiating the joy and glory of the Lord as she spoke in an unknown tongue. The backslidden, rebellious man who had consistently resisted the call of God over his life fell under the table and there began to worship the Lord in another tongue as the Lord gave him utterance. His young wife, seeing what was taking place, cried out in a loud voice, All timidity gone now. I too, Lord, lest the Spirit should pass her by. Upon her too the river of the Holy Spirit flowed, baptizing her in his presence, and she broke forth in a strange tongue. Although we didn't realize it at the time, the Holy Spirit was being outpoured not only upon us, but upon the whole of Argentina in a new way, an outpouring that would later reach out into the furthest corners of this mighty country. An act of simple obedience had opened the door. God had set in motion the forces to change this vast pagan country and make of it a Christian nation. The move of God for which so many had prayed had come. Faith had triumphed. All the prayers, tears, longing, and countless hours of wrestling with the enemy had at last prevailed. Faith changed into sight, and we entered the stream of his mighty purpose for which so many had longed and prayed yet had not seen. Others had laid down their lives in faith, not having received the promise. Nevertheless, he came, just as he promised. The wisdom of God put to naught the wisdom of man. To hit on a table in obedience to the prompting of the Holy Spirit took away the last obstacle to the flow of the mighty river of God. In early June 1949, the river began to flow out to Argentina, in a new and tremendous way. The news of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit traveled swiftly. More people came out to the prayer service the next night. From then on, neither cold nor danger nor anything else hindered the people from coming to be filled with the Holy Spirit. A 14-year-old girl having little education saw visions of things to come. Many of those visions came to pass. At times she prophesied, quoting many scriptures she had never learned nor read. Felix, a young man, received the word of knowledge and saw hidden things in vision. One night he astonished a retired schoolteacher through the word of knowledge to clear her home of idols. She replied in hurt amazement that there were no idols in her home. Then God gave Felix a vision showing him a certain trunk of hers with a pile of religious relics at the bottom. It was true. The relics, keepsakes left by her deceased mother, had been there for so many years she had forgotten them. God, manifesting his hatred of all idolatry, wanted them destroyed. The following day the teacher brought all the relics to be destroyed. God taught us of gifts and operations of the Holy Spirit that we'd never known before. Young Felix received an anointed healing ministry, later becoming a successful evangelist and pioneering new work. 
the word of revival went out. More and more new people came. All who came were soon saved and baptized with the Holy Spirit. During those months, the church did not have one member who was not filled with the Holy Spirit. As soon as they were saved, they received the Holy Spirit, often before receiving baptism in water. Brother Thomas, who had labored with me in the disastrous Laval tent campaign, made a special trip to visit us. Various ministers in Buenos Aires, having heard the reports of a moving of the Spirit in Mendoza, sent Brother Thomas to make a first-hand report. Having pastored the Mendoza church at one time, he already knew the people well. Looking upon the gloriously transformed people, all praising God and moving in one operation and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, he said, this is a miracle. This is God. Only God could do this with these people. Before we had studies on the gifts and operations of the Holy Spirit, there was no response. Now these people are manifesting these same gifts. In weeks, the little church doubled and redoubled its membership. The people formed into little bands and went out to witness for the Lord on the streets and into the homes they went in the power of the Holy Spirit, returning with glorious testimonies of what God was doing in response to their simple faith and witnessing. People were saved and healed as hands were laid upon them in faith. I listened attentively, and the Lord seemed to speak again and say, You see, son, I can do much more with these little Spanish-speaking ones filled with the Holy Spirit than I could with your going out alone with tracks from door to door. Seeing the wonderful wisdom and plan of God, my heart was melted. I knew his way was best. Having cleansed the church by the purifying Holy Spirit, and put it into his order, the Lord began to lead out even more in the ministry of healing. We held a campaign in a tent. This time, it was not a failure. God worked his wonders. One night, there was such a moving of the Spirit of the Lord that all present, whether saved or unsaved, were on their knees before the Lord crying out to him as a mighty word of prophecy went forth in the name of Jesus. All knelt before him that night and confessed him Lord of all. When his spirit swept over in mighty power, no one could resist his presence. Overnight, the Lord had transformed the Mendoza church. Instead of a few struggling, uninterested church members, our church was full. Instead of cold silence in the worship services, joyous rejoicing took its place. In place of sighing was singing. In place of death was life. In place of defeat was victory. God had come to us in Mendoza. The desert had become a fruitful place. But as the goal of the river is to flow ever onwards, seeking new channels, it could not be confined to Mendoza. Before long, invitations had come to visit other churches and towns. So leaving Felix, the national pastor, in charge of the Mendoza work, we turned southward. 
How do you respond to this story, Alexandra? What are your thoughts? There are a lot of thoughts about this story. Um, some things that strike me are the, the deadness and lack of interest in the church and how that's only transformed by the coming of the Holy Spirit. One thing that really strikes me is that the people were saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit at the same time, even before being baptized in water. And that's what we see when we look at the book of Acts. There doesn't seem to be a lag between repenting and giving yourself to Jesus and then receiving the full baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus said he would give us. Now, what's being described here is literally normal New Testament church. Yes. This is not some strange phenomena. This is what the Lord intends for every church. Yes, this is what is a description of when Jesus called the kingdom of heaven coming to the earth. Now, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven flowed into Mendoza in power. Now, if you're listening to this, understand, this is why Alexandra and myself are giving our time to prayer and fasting and scripture. Part of me wishes I didn't have to do this radio broadcast. I would rather just wait on the Lord. But somehow, we've been directed to come and with absolute honesty say to you we have not yet been baptized in this power of the Holy Spirit but we are seeking Jesus with all of our heart and we're not going to back away and we're praying that many of you are doing the same and that each of us will receive this same experience that Jesus intended for every one of us to have that's the very purpose for which he came and frankly part of where we struggle is that we're not on salary and how do we survive how do we live the Lord said to me at the very beginning of this wait on the Lord the Lord will carry you through so we know the Lord has already spoken to me and said wait on me well he wouldn't say wait on the Lord if he didn't intend to come he's not going to leave me waiting on a street corner and never come. But how long? And how long do we survive? And so I'm telling you that only to say this is not a cushy deal. This is laying everything on the line and saying we must have Alexandra and Ray, we must have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and I can assure you that we are two very ordinary Common. people. As he described himself, I'm a cloddy person. I'm an earthy person. I'm just like everybody else. We're nobody special. But our hearts are utterly given to search after Jesus. And I would just add that when we look at the four Gospels and we look at the book of Acts... 
the disciples of Jesus never knew anything except this power of God as the kingdom literally came to the earth. What we just shared about the beginning of the revival in Argentina, that was all the disciples ever knew. From the very first time they met Jesus, he was walking in power, proclaiming that the kingdom of God had come. They spent years with him in a continuous revival. And then Jesus said that he was going away and that he was leaving his disciples to carry on that work. And so that's why he admonished them to wait in the upper room until they had the power to do it. And so they waited, they received the power, and then they continued to walk in that revival for the rest of their lives. And so the disciples never knew anything of a gospel with no power. That would have seemed absurd to them. For them, the gospel inherently was the power of God coming to the earth. But let's be very practical. I agree with you, Alexandra. And yet we don't have that baptism and we don't know anyone in Washington who has that baptism. Yes, and that just shows how far we have fallen from the simple Christianity laid out in the New Testament. And so we come and we don't know how we're going to survive except our eyes are upon Jesus. We're looking to him. But to be very honest, the questions in the dark of the night as I'm struggling before God, what if God doesn't come? What if everything ends? Well, I don't struggle with those questions because I don't think there's any point in living at all unless I'm going to live in the New Testament. And I agree with that. But still, the devil comes and says, you're going to die. Well, don't listen to the devil. Oh, I'm not. I'm standing by faith that Jesus is going to do what he has promised he would do. He has been most kind. There is a work that must be done in our hearts to remove us from the traditional things of man, the human piety, the human rules and regulations built into the American church. The traditions of the church. The traditions of the elders. And we're having to come utterly out of that and raise the questions even about what is the gospel. And I'm clear the gospel is not a call to repentance and forgiveness. Jesus preached repentance and the forgiveness of sin, but that was to prepare them to enter into the kingdom of God and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And when you read again in Acts, the first chapter, you find the story of Jesus saying, wait on me, wait for the Holy Spirit. And then chapter two, when the day of Pentecost is being fulfilled, they with all one accord at the same place and suddenly there came the rushing of a mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting and there appeared to them tongues of fire. In other words, there's purity and there's power. 
and it sat upon each one of them, and they were all filled by the Holy Spirit and began to speak with tongues of a different kind as the Spirit gave them to speak. Now, over 3,000 people respond to Peter's sermon. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. In the New Testament church, everyone was expected to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That was the normal life. That's the point. That's the point. Yes. And it makes me raise the question, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And are you interested in what we've described today? And are you interested in walking with us in this? Are you interested in beginning to set apart time to pray and confess and repent? Are you wanting with all of your heart the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Now, I can't tell you how he will come, but as you've so bluntly put it, the only reason you live is to live in the New Testament. And I've tried through the years as a pastor to recreate the New Testament church. But I tried to do that with forms and structures of human ingenuity, not in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't need the forms and structures of the New Testament church. We need the author. We need the one who created the New Testament church. We need Jesus, and we need the poured-out power of the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the advocate. We need the Holy Spirit to shape the church the way he wants to shape it. Any last thoughts before we close today's broadcast, Alexandra? I would just invite you all to visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. If you missed yesterday's message or Monday's message, please go on and listen to them. The Lord has just been throwing open our minds on these questions. And it's really just... We just really have to reevaluate everything that we've taken for granted about what is Christianity, what is baptism, what is salvation, and... In my mind, baptism is always meant by water. But in the New Testament, Jesus doesn't baptize with water. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Yes. That's not to say there weren't water baptisms. Yes, we can't just read the scriptures being unconscious of our personal lens that we come to it with because we'll miss the main points. And so that's what we've done on Monday and Tuesday if we, is we've really just walked through the book of Matthew and then also through the difference between John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. And we're really just trying to see what the Gospels and the book of Acts, what the narratives are plainly telling us and showing us. And then 
we can start to understand what the epistles are saying once we understand what the narratives are saying. Now, as Alexandra said at the beginning of this broadcast, we consider you who listen daily our congregation. And my question is, are you excited about what we've shared and about what we're doing in waiting on God? And will you, will you walk with us in this? Will you stand in support of this? Is this important to you? We've laid our life on the line that the Holy Spirit will come in power and bring revival to Washington. I want to see happen in Washington what we just shared about happening in Argentina. In the whole nation? Yes. We want to see America turn back to God. Amen. Well, we have only two minutes left in our broadcast. I want to give you an address. If you want to stand with us, we'd like to hear from you. It's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Again, it's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. If you're writing a check, please make it out to Pastor Ray Greenley. You can also give on our website, nationalprayerchapel.com. We just ask that if you choose to give by credit card, that you do not go into debt to support our ministry. The Lord wants us to give out of what we have and not out of what we don't have. So you can go to the webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. We love you. We're on a journey. Will you travel with us? We're going to report every day in a very vulnerable way exactly what God is doing. God bless you, my brother and my sister. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. With great joy Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless for the presence of His glory with great joy, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.